0: up its global footprint. It's crucial to avoid European naval gazing. Instead, Europe needs to engage partners around the world on their expectations and concerns about the EU's activities and ambitions. It's time for Europe to listen carefully and with curiosity. Welcome to Europe Listens, where we explore issues, countries, and regions that too often receive little attention in European discourses on global affairs. I'm Rafael Lost. I'm ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. For this fourth episode of our series, we're joined by Dr. Tojan Kasenova, a non-resident fellow with the Nuclear Policy Program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Previously, she served on the UN Secretary General's Advisory Board on disarmament matters. Dr. Kasenova is also the author of Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb, which was published by Stanford University Press just earlier this year. One of the reviews of the book read The beauty and magic of this brutalized landscape cannot be erased. Tojan's book introduces us to the indomitable strength of its people, including those victimized by nuclear testing. They and we are in her debt. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Rafael. It's such a pleasure to be uh, on this, my first Twitter space as a speaker. Um, I'm grateful you invited me and that you expressed interest in Kazakhstan. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being here. Um, then, then let's kick us off. Um, I prepared a couple of questions for you um, uh, to, to get the conversation started. So Many, many people in, in the current um, context of Russia's war against Ukraine have heard mm-hmm. of Ukraine's own nuclear legacy um, for the first time uh, with, with the invasion just nine, nine weeks ago or so. Um, during the 1990s, Ukraine transferred hundreds of, of nuclear warheads um, that it had inherited from the Soviet Union to Russia in exchange for security assurances from Moscow but also from London and Washington, um, the so-called Budapest Memorandum. Um, Kazakhstan's relationship with nuclear weapons is no less complex, um, having endured more than 450 nuclear tests between 1949 and 1989. Can you tell us a bit about this history and and why Kazakhstan was selected as a test site and what effects four decades' worth of nuclear testing had on the country?
1: Thank you, Rafael. Uh, I'll start start by uh, just sharing... uh, um... My personal feelings and emotions in terms of what's happening in Ukraine—I think it's painful on so many levels. But um, for me, as a Kazakh and as somebody who worked on this book for a long time, uh, what makes me even sadder is that what's happening in Ukraine is not a fluke, uh, but rather a pattern of the um, of the pretty long term experience that former Soviet republics uh, lived through. Uh, it's a its a pattern of disrespect for life, uh, disrespect for culture of others. Uh, I'll just mention, for example, from Kazakhstan's own history, similar to Ukraine, for example, in the 1930s, there was uh, mass death from famine. Um, so a similar story to Ukraine because of the policies of the Soviet Union. Uh, 1.5 million people uh, died in Kazakhstan from um, from artificial starvation, from from starvation, from famine that was uh, a result of irresponsible state policies. And so that pattern um, it continued throughout the history of Kazakhstan. And when in the '40s the Soviet military was choosing a site for its future nuclear weapons tests, they, they zeroed it on zero, zero did on Kazakhstan and their the reasons uh, and justifications were very technical. They were looking for, for a site that would give them access to construction material that would be... Um, that would have access to major transportation hubs, but wouldn't be too close to them uh, because they worried about uh, foreign espionage. Of course, they also wanted the site to be further away from um, from Moscow, from, from the metropole, and they just had no regard whatsoever for the local population or the environment. In the Soviet documents of the time, um, the Soviet government would use phrases such as uninhabited land, which was completely uh, untrue because there were rural uh, settlements exactly in that area. And that area was also used um, as pasture land uh, for many people who lived there for for the livestock that they were raising. And so nuclear tests, they continued for 40 years, uh, atmospheric and the ground. There were also so-called peaceful nuclear tests. And they resulted in severe consequences, cancers, skin, blood, diseases, but also they had a mental toll. Uh, There was a very tragic rise in suicides in in the region, Um, not to mention all the consequences, for example, for uh, women who were giving birth to to babies with very visible physical disabilities or with Down syndrome and, and, and so forth. And all this was happening in the atmosphere of complete secrecy. And uh, the narrative was controlled by, uh, by the Soviet government, by the Soviet military. Local doctors were not allowed to give truthful diagnosis to people. And so, for example, if it would be stomach cancer, it would be written stomach disease. And and unfortunately, there was also no treatment. Um, People were monitored for the data on how radiation impacts humans, but there there was no treatment and and people just suffered um, on their own without any, any help. And I'm so sad to say that even though the last test, as you correctly mentioned, happened in 1989, so decades ago, the legacy of the Soviet nuclear tests continues to today. I, I, For my book, I've traveled um, to the villages near the former testing sites in Kazakhstan, and it's really a very distressing and heartbreaking experience because I, I saw with my own eyes what the tests did, and how the legacy continues. Because I've met children and babies who are now can be who now can be considered the fourth generation of victims, and uh, they have very visible health issues.
0: Thanks very much. Very very moving. Very powerful. I. I appreciate that you mentioned also the, the racialized dimension that we also see in other um, nuclear weapons development programs. If We think of um, uh, the, the French tests in, in, in the South Pacific or um, American uh, tests and, and native populations in, in North America and how they were affected. Um, given what is happening in, in Ukraine at the moment, is there any regret among Kazakhs about opting for a future free of nuclear weapons during the 1990s? I mean, they they transferred more than 1,400 warheads to Russia and, and became a leader in, in nuclear disarmament and non proliferation
1: Exactly. So, similar to Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan uh, inherited quite a significant amount of warheads, intercontinental ballistic missiles, heavy bombers, tons of nuclear material, and um, some in- infrastructure related to nuclear weapons production. And you know, usually we focus in our field, in the nuclear policy field, we focus on arsenal itself, on the weapons. But I would note that in Kazakhstan's case, for example, it's even more important what Kazakhstan decided to do or not to do with nuclear material and infrastructure. So for with the Soviet nuclear weapons that were on Kazakhstan's territory, Kazakhstan didn't have access to command and control. It couldn't launch them. It couldn't prevent uh, them being launched. Uh, physically, they were controlled uh, by by Moscow. And but still, the weapons were on Kazakhstan's territory, and Kazakhstan was a sovereign state, and and so their fate could not be decided without Kazakhstan's taking certain decisions on, on its behalf. And it's very important that both on the arsenal and on nuclear material, Kazakhstan's leadership made a strategic decision that it was not interested in pursuing a nuclear path, that it would move towards denuclearization. And and I'll explain uh, the main motivation behind this decision. So, you know, for for decades, Kazakhstan was part of the Soviet Union. Um, um, I, I would assume that it, for the audience and for, for the outside world. During the Soviet period, um, Kazakhstan hardly registered as space or as land uh, because, you know, the Soviet Union presented itself a certain way. And and in everything, people of Kazakhstan w- depended on what Moscow decided, even for international trips, for international trips, there was no direct international flight for example from Almaty and people would have to go to Moscow so just imagine a young country that is finally uh, given this chance to present itself to the world to have this direct access, direct link to the international community And, and so I think it was very important for Kazakhstan to enter this international community as a responsible country as a country that is not trying to upset the, um, the international security system that is mindful of the global norms on nuclear uh, non-proliferation. And, and that was, I think, a very important indication of how Kazakhstan wanted to present itself to the world and what kind of country it wanted to become, but also on a very practical level. Uh, Kazakhstan's economy was in crisis because all the ties within the Soviet Union were broken off and um, the economy was in crisis but at the same time all these natural resources including oil were in abundance in Kazakhstan but in order to start producing them Kazakhstan needed foreign direct investment foreign technology and it needed access to International markets; it needed access to international institutions, and and I think there was this very clear real, realization that for to receive all of that, um, it would be impossible if Kazakhstan would try to push its way into a nuclear club, to forcefully push itself into a nuclear club, and um, so I think it was a very uh, thought through decision. Uh, it was uh, uh, a conscious decision, but it's another interesting story of how Kazakh leadership, you know bargained and what it wanted to receive in exchange. And um, there was this mixture of really having some very legitimate concerns, for example, about security. but also, you know, trying to <laughs> there was quite a bit of audacity as well in how. Kazakhs negotiated with Americans, for example. But um, I just want to mention on on the security front, similar to Ukraine, and that's why it's so disturbing for us to observe what's happening in Ukraine, for Kazakhstan, receiving security assurances, uh, guarantees was number one concern. It was the really the major focus of all negotiations on denuclearization, similar to Ukraine, Kazakhstan signed Budapest Memorandum. And earlier, uh, there there was also an important document, a bilateral document with the United States, um, Charter on democratic partnership in which the United States also uh, codified some security assurances. And so what's happening, what what, what has been happening uh, in Ukraine since 2014, it's really just very hard to observe, I think, in terms of this complete disregard for international norms and, uh, and again, to disrespect to the, to the promises that were made at the highest uh, level. But just to, to, to address what you specifically asked, whether the right new regrets in Kazakhstan No, um, you know, if you you look at the political level and just the uh, discourse among experts and and policymakers, there are no regrets at all because I think Kazakhstan would have become a completely different country if it it behaved differently back then. Uh, But, you know, from time to time, there are some uh, comments that I receive on Twitter, but they mostly come from... um, from a sl- slightly uh, uninformed place in terms of what was possible, technically speaking, but also just in terms of what geopolitics of all of this was and what Kazakhstan needed as a, as a new country. And, um, and so I would say as a country, Kazakhstan doesn't have any regrets, even, you know, despite uh, what's happening today.
0: Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Um, despite Kazakhstan deciding um, against a, a a future with nuclear weapons, it is it is a leader in in, in civilian nu- nuclear use. Um, it is the host country since two thousand and seventeen of the International Atomic Energy Agency's Low-Enriched Uranium Bank and holds physical reserves of, of low-enriched uranium that, that energy members, um, IAEA members, can can draw on. Can you tell us a bit about um, what, what Kazakhstan experience has been um, with respect to civilian nuclear use? Uh,
1: so it's interesting how, you know, on one hand, being part of the Soviet nuclear program brought so much um heartache and tragedy to Kazakhstan. But at the same time, you know, we shouldn't paint everything in black and white. Um, Kazakhstan definitely tries to use the the foundation that was there for the peaceful nuclear program from the Soviet period, some of the facilities. Uh, in order to, to build its own advanced uh, peaceful program, there was this conscious decision that... Um, It was important to dismantle weapons-related infrastructure, but that it was important to keep uh, anything that would be helpful for peaceful use of uh, nuclear technology. And so in that sense, uh, and because Kazakhstan is endowed with uranium, there is this emphasis on um, trying to be uh, one of the consequential players on the commercial uh, nuclear market, for example, um, there are parts of nuclear fuel cycle are available in Kazakhstan. Nuclear fuel cycle, it's a process of producing nuclear fuel for nuclear power plants. But importantly, because Kazakhstan is so serious about uh, not uh, doing anything that would be detrimental to the nuclear non-proliferation regime. So even with the nuclear fuel cycle, there are some parts of it in Kazakhstan, but the stages that are considered sensitive for example enrichment of uranium Um, Kazakhstan never tried to develop its domestic uh, capacity to do it because it doesn't make any economic sense but also because uh, it's not very helpful for the non-proliferation regime and and so you know on one hand it's trying to be um, an important player but it's doing it responsibly. And you've mentioned, for example, the, the IAEA low-enriched uh, uranium fuel bank. And uh, just for the sake of the audience, I, I, I'll explain that it might not be a panacea for <laughs> nuclear issues, but it's one of the tools that can be available to the international community because, as I've mentioned, uh, producing nuclear fuel uh, can be considered dual use because it can be used for both uh, military and peaceful purposes. And so, to have one more uh, place where internationally controlled uh, stock of low enriched uranium is available, so that countries that are considering developing their own domestic capability to do it might decide not to do it because they would think, okay, you know, um, for worst case scenario, um, we know that we can go to the ILEU bank and, and get some fuel from there. Uh, and that's just one of the examples of how Kazakhstan is trying to be um, a constructive player in that space. Um, the, the entire diplomacy, nuclear diplomacy is very attuned to both nuclear disarmament and nuclear non-proliferation. And, you, and as we know, there is this tension in the international community between Uh, nuclear haves and nuclear have-nots, there is this tension between nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation in some cases. And I think that's why Kazakhstan's case is an important example of how a country can be very serious about uh, wanting to see a world free of nuclear weapons, but at the same time it also buys into the importance of uh, non-proliferation, the importance of making sure that technology doesn't uh, doesn't spread too much. Um, another, um, I think, good example of how the legacy or the, the past is used for something good is the the example of the former nuclear testing side. I think it's a, such a wonderful story that the place that caused uh, so much tragedy can now be used, really because it's unique infrastructure and now it can be used for Exercises um, in support of the global ban on nuclear tests, because you know when the treaty goes into into force, you'll need to make sure that all the verification systems are working well, all the detection system, monitoring stations, and where else but in the at the former nuclear testing site that you can have this space and the infrastructure to run those exercises and and. So yeah, I think it's a just a really positive story of um, of converting converting tragic past into something
0: more constructive similarly looking looking ahead a bit um for my for my last question, um I want to discuss um opportunities for for collaboration in this area. So most analysts would say that nuclear risks are on the rise. Um, Russia's war against Ukraine has an undeniable nuclear dimension, and you have already touched on aspects of it. Um, but we can also sort of recall tense exchanges between uh, Donald Trump and, and Kim Jong-un. Uh, the arms control architecture is weaker than at any point since the end of the Cold War, arguably. China um unconstrained by any legal limitations it's building up its nuclear forces. What can what can Kazakhstan and the EU, Kazakhs and Europeans do to address um, these and other challenges in, in 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 the nuclear realm to reduce global nuclear risks
1: I really do believe in the power of um, every individual state and that you know every individual government can um, engage in meaningful initiatives, um, and I, I just wanted to give a couple of uh, uh, European examples. Um, and for those who are interested, maybe uh, if I if I give some um, names, you'll be able to look up and read up a little bit more on them. Uh, for example, Austria is a leader on the um, on uh, really leading the conversation on the humanitarian impact uh, of nuclear weapons. Um, They they hosted several conferences um, on the subject, and it's a very important dimension of the conversation of uh, really how do nuclear weapons programs impact uh, people. Uh, Sweden um, is another good example uh, that you know, and for those interested, if you look up um, Stockholm Initiative for nuclear disarmament and uh, so-called stepping stones towards nuclear disarmament, and and again, you know, one country takes the initiative and then others join. So, for example, with Stockholm Initiative, um, they united, uh, I think, maybe around sixteen countries or so, with very diverse. Uh, security policies, and and they are working together on making lists of, um, you know, realistic and practical steps that uh, different types of countries, nuclear weapon states, non-nuclear weapon states, can take um, in order to reduce nuclear risks um, and uh, and move towards uh, nuclear disarmament. And uh, Kazakhstan is 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 part of, of the initiatives that I've mentioned. And you know, for Kazakhstan specifically, I think it's in a unique position because it's a it's a developing country. Um, it's it has that background, you know, being subject to nuclear tests, but it does also have now the expertise and the infrastructure and the experience. And and so I think it's both its voice, uh, but also and experience, uh, which are more intangible, are important, but also intangible. Uh, in very tangible terms, the fact that there is relevant infrastructure, that there is, you know, there are there is knowledge and facilities that can be now used for, um, for example, uh, scientific collaboration on verification of nuclear disarmament you know as a country one of the few countries that actually had to go through the process of dismantling weapons infrastructure there is this very real-life experience that now kazakhstan can use um with the with the with an eye to the future and 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 so you know it's really difficult i think especially the last two months um with all the nuclear anxieties running so high, um, I think it's it's such a strong reminder that if we didn't have nuclear weapons in the world, of course we would be heartbroken about what's happening and very worried. And and conventional wars are difficult enough and awful enough, but the fact that we also have a nuclear dimension to what's happening right now, I think, just shows that as long as nuclear weapons exist, we are all hostages to uh, a potential nuclear war. But I don't want to leave on such a, <laughs> on such a dark note. I, I I I want just to close, I guess, my answer with a with a thought that. Um, I regularly have to maybe remind myself also that each person and each country has agency over what um, a country does or a person does. And and so on an individual level, if you're a journalist or a scholar or in advocacy, um, I think it's just important that everybody does their part and, and, and does something practical towards what you think is important. And, um, you know, for me, for example, Talking about the fact that nuclear weapons are not abstract and that they do have uh, an impact on people's life. Uh, For me, that's important. It's an important story I want to bring. And um, and yeah, I guess I just want to say that every person and every government can do something to to move to the outcome or to the world that we want
0: uh, to see. Ending on a, on a great call for action. I, I like that. I appreciate that very much. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for a fascinating conversation, Dr. Kasanova for, for joining us um, on Europe Listens. I listen carefully and I hope Europe did too.
1: Thank you so much, Rafael. And thank you for everybody who tuned in or will listen after.
0: Thank you. And do go check out um, Dr. Kasanova's book, Atomic Step. It's, it's really a really fascinating account of, of um, Kazakhstan's nuclear legacy and, and leadership and, and non-proliferation. Europe Listens is part of ECFR's Reshape Global Europe project, supported by Stiftung Mercato. Thank you for tuning in and listening in. Until next time. Bye.